They've watched Citizen Kane a combined 200 times. Elliot's first words were, I personally thought the use of Dutch angles was derivative in the 400 blows. And Nathan's favorite historical figure is Fritz Lang. Now they're bringing that snootiness to you with Magellan's at the Movies. Here we go. I'm just going to cut you off before you can say wow or anything like that. Nathan, welcome back. This is Magellan's at the Movies podcast, what you're listening to. The most well-reviewed movie reviewing podcast in the history of podcasts. So we're glad to have that honor. Uh, Nathan, recently a television show known as Fargo had its fifth season. Three episodes of this fifth season have been released I have watched all three. I can't remember if you said you had watched the third one because I am distracted. But we have definitely watched the first two. Uh, we mentioned, we have both talked about before, our love of definitely season one of Fargo and uh, season two and three. Uh, season two has some problems. Season three is fantastic. Season four has got off the rails a bit, but... Hopefully, uh, the reviews say that this is a return to form, but that's the shill media, right? We're the real audience. We are the voice of the people. So let's tell the people what they think and what they're saying, like a good voice of the people does. Nathan, give it to us. Uh, yeah, I have seen all three of the newest episodes which I only told you like literally five minutes ago. So it's kind of disturbing that you already forgot. <laughs> and I, I'm really enjoying it. I think it's uh, it's very much kind of classic Fargo in that uh, there's some weird stuff in it. People behave strangely. People behave maybe in a way that <laughs> you wouldn't expect normal people to behave. But I think this season so far is pretty good i think they've got a really strong setup i've been seeing i was very happy to learn as i was reading interviews with noah hawley that i had correctly identified the kind of central conceit or idea of the season which is kind of debt who gets to decide who owes a debt to who and how do we repay that debt and yeah, I'm enjoying it. I really like Juno Temple as kind of the central person of this season. Uh, I like John Hamm as the villain. I think there's some elements of the show that feel... Um, and see, I hate, I hate to say stuff like this because, you know, there's always going to be some wackos saying that, you know, shows have gotten too political or something. But there are moments in this season that feel kind of written in response to criticisms that the show could have. Like every season of Fargo so far has had a cop as a hero or a protagonist. And this is the first season to, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, this is one of the first seasons to have a cop as kind of a villain. So it feels very aware of, right, shifting sort of cultural ideas towards policemen and police work. And there's just some times where John Hamm's villain says something that I'm like, eh, 
nah, that that seems a little corny. It feels very much like in I think it's Far Cry. Is it Far Cry Five that has the like religious wackos as the villain? He it feels very much like that in a way that I don't think is necessarily intentional. But I'm enjoying the new season. I'm very interested to see where it goes because the last episode kind of left on a bit of a cliffhanger where it seemed like it, you know stuff was about to hit the fan, but there's still like four episodes past that, I think. So I'm very interested to see what happens after this kind of shakeup happens in this next episode. Interesting. It seems like we've identified some of the same weaknesses of the show it also seems like they're much more of a problem for me than they are for you i think Mm. it is safe to say that i am not on board with this season so far i i hadn't thought that the previous seasons might have attracted criticism or conversation about the police being the heroes in light of that it makes so much more sense the John Hamm and his son, because they represent a massive overcorrection. Like, they are so annoying to me, because they are just, they are just caricatures. Like, Hmm. what's his name? Gator. That's a stupid name, by the way. Um, Yeah. One of the other cops says, like, protect and serve and he's like oh I, I i believe in protect but that other part no i'm in the kicking button ta- i'm in the protect and kicking button taking names business and i was just rolling my eyes because that is so stupid no one talks like that and so it seems like an like a pretty egregious example of telling and not showing and also like the within first of all the first things that John Hamm's character, I can't remember what his name is, Roy, Roy Tillman. Uh, the first yeah. things that Roy Tillman says is a No Country for Old Men reference or homage. So I was happy with that. But within like five lines, I had clocked that, okay, this guy, I had clocked pretty much everything that this character was and was going to be. Like I knew that he was going to be abusive. I knew that he was going to have weird sex stuff in his private life. I knew that he was going to be doing illegal things on the side. So it's, yeah, it's just these overblown parodies that are not interesting and just seem like, they seem like they were written. And I I agree with you. I'm I'm trying to be careful with my language here because I don't want to give credence to certain sects of the internet who would say that, the idea of a show being political at all or portraying people with certain beliefs as being villainous is inherently wrong because I don't think that's the case whatsoever. But I think that there's nothing so far. Yeah, I should say so far. To I should add a so far asterisk to all this. But so far, the show has failed to add anything to our understanding of these stereotypes or these this conception of these kinds yeah. of people. Uh, it is colored within the lines to a fault. And the picture that's coloring in is such a, an obnoxious exaggeration that it really wore the show down for me. And there's also, I know I'm going on a bit here, but there's also moments <laughs> that are just dumb. Like when the, the, this woman, this female cop, needs to show another cop a picture 
of a woman's mugshot. Oh, yeah. And Gator takes it, and for some reason, he doesn't want them to see the woman. I have no idea why or why he thinks that would be permanent because he deletes the picture from her phone and there's like a half second. And in that half second, my thoughts were of, oh, I guess she'll just say, well, I can email it to you because there's obviously, this is not the only existing picture of that mugshot. She's not going to just throw her hands up and say, oh, well, that would be stupid. And then after that half second expired, she said, she threw up her hands and said, oh, well, and it doesn't even matter because in the very next episode, she emails him a picture. So what was the point of that? Yeah, I would agree. I do think maybe I'm being a little nicer to the show because I am hoping it goes in a different direction than I'm thinking it will with Roy and Gator. But I would definitely agree that right now they seem very much like very stereotypical characters with not a whole lot kind of interesting going on underneath the surface, which is interesting because I feel like Fargo has always kind of, or at least good seasons of Fargo have always been like really fascinating in the way that they make all of the characters feel very sort of three-dimensional outside of the crazy nihilist hunter people that they only seem to have, like bounty hunters that they only seem to have. But almost everyone else is typically colored in very well. So I'm hoping that happens with Roy. Uh, maybe not with Gator, because if he survives this season, I will be floored. He, the fact that he survived the first three episodes is astonishing to me. I just think Joe Keery is going to die. And then I'm going to get to watch Stranger Things season five, and then he's going to die again. Wow. That'll be traumatic. But, but I, I, that's another thing, is like there are just stupid moments. Like the fact that... Ole Munch is the character's name. This, like, person that they hired to get Roy Tillman's woman or his ex-wife does not kill Gator. Why is that? And also, this third episode annoyed me quite a bit because there was that one point where this, like, I think she's a representative or maybe a state senator or something like that, is give, gives this huge monologue to the police about how Oh, what what's the purpose of police? Well, let me tell you, it's they're they're gatekeepers to keep the people without class or intellect or status away from the people who do have all that stuff. And I was like, that is so absurd. And regardless of what a person says, what kind of political diatribe a person goes on, when a story stops to just turn to the camera and preach a message like that to me i'm like shut up this is stupid and it doesn't fit in the story at all and it is again it's a violation of the show don't tell rule like if that's what the show wants if that's the argument that the show wants to put forth that's fine i'm fine with that but then show how that works or how that happens don't just have this stupid woman who's also very very annoying as a character just say it also one last thing one last thing, I promise. Oh, boy. There's a bit where – so this show is set in 2019, and there's a flashback that says 500 years ago, and it, the, the date it then shows is 1522. 2019 minus 500 is 1519, not 1520, 20, not 1522, okay? 
Yeah, I did. I did notice that. I thought that was a weird sort of oversight, especially since, right, once you get 500 years ago, the date doesn't matter that much. It's olden times. Well, why? Why does it? Did it have to be 1522? Why not just have it be 1519? I don't know. Maybe we won't recap Fargo before every episode if you're going to spend 10 minutes talking about it. Well, I had to I had to get a I had to get across 3 episodes of thoughts. That's like 3 hours worth of story. Oh, sure. All right. Well, let's let's move on here. We'll see if we continue doing this given how upset it's made Elliot. But um let's move on to talk about the actual movie that we're doing today and you know, feel free to Fast forward in the future through our discussion of Fargo. Uh, Elliot, why don't you take us through what's uh, what are we doing this week? What's uh, what are we reviewing this week? As you'll have already realized by the title of this episode, we are reviewing Interstellar, 2014 science fiction drama directed by Christopher Nolan, the master of the science fiction drama. It is set some point in the not too distant future where a some kind of ecological disaster has caused a famine that the world is trying to recover from uh it's severely damaged the world's population there have been some wars it's implied but now uh that's over and the earth is kind of trying to recover the like only thing that they could possibly grow is corn so there's corn everywhere they're in a new dust bowl and our story follows, what's his first name? Something Coop. Yeah, it's something Cooper. His name in the cast list is just Cooper. That can't be right. Interesting, okay. No, it's just Cooper. What the heck? Okay, so Cooper, first name unknown, who is a former engineer and pilot turned farmer who was recruited into a top secret group of astronauts to... Go, undergo interstellar travel through a mysteriously appearing wormhole to another galaxy to try to find a new planet that humanity can settle on uh, because the the ecological disaster the blight is what it's called is affecting the corn and uh, it's going to basically the all the oxygen in the earth is going to disappear and everyone's going to suffocate so that's really bad so they need to find a new place for humans to live and all the while, his daughter, who with whom he has a close but fraught relationship, stays behind, or well, I mean, she doesn't have a choice, stays behind on Earth trying to figure out how to get these giant space stations off the ground so they can save the rest of humanity without, without the people who are in the other galaxy having to propagate the human race by this, like, weird thing where they're going to grow people. It doesn't make it doesn't matter. The point is that's the basic story. This movie got pretty good reviews when it came out. I think it it, it was it, there was a much stronger response from audiences than there was from critics. I would say the critic score is somewhere around like seven out of ten is the standard, whereas the audience score is quite a bit higher than that. This is a movie that we saw in theaters. I cannot for, for the life of me remember why we went to see it in theaters because this was kind of before. Oh, it was for Nathan. And. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about this movie. This is a movie that the more I watch, the more I like it. I think that it was criminally underrated by the 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 the, the professional critics when it came out. 
I think it's fantastic. This is one of my favorite Nolan movies. This is one of my favorite science fiction movies. There's so much that I love about this movie that I really, I'm really excited to talk to. I'm really excited to talk to you, to you, Nathan, about this because you are a bit of a science guy. You know a lot more about physics and quantum theory and stuff like that. So I'm interested to see what kind of insights you have into that side of the movie. But uh, let's let's have our opening thoughts, Nathan. Give us give us your opening thoughts. Yeah. So we. This movie was, I would consider this movie one of the first movies to kind of get me into movies because I don't know if you can remember if you're old enough or if you were around and paying attention to things, but the trailers for this movie were very um, kind of abstract. It was a lot of like voiceover and then just like a shot of a rocket. I think one of them just had the poem that Michael Caine's character reads a whole bunch of times that do not go quietly into that good night. And so the trailers were very, I think, oblique is how you could also kind of describe them. They didn't make a lot of sense, but they really got me interested in this film that I really wanted to see what was the deal. I saw that it was from, I we had recently watched the Dark Knight trilogy and just absolutely loved that. So when I saw that, this was from the same director as the Dark Knight trilogy. I was like, oh man, this is really exciting. And so I want to say I was kind of the driving force behind me, you, and dad going to this movie in theaters. And as I think we said in uh, our first special episode, Getting to Know the Magellans, this is one of the fondest memories of a theater experience that I have. This movie blew me away. It was so consistently surprising and shocking and good in my eyes just because I went in knowing so little and then was just blown away by where the story went. I was so sucked into the world. This is one of the few movies that I remember being really like pulled into it right away that I was right in there with the protagonist and wondering like, man, this does seem like a pretty bleak sort of apocalypse. I don't know how they're going to get out of this. And uh, I like to tell this story that right around when Matt Damon appears in this movie, I really had to pee like desperately. And I thought in my head, I was like, oh, there's got to be only like 20 more minutes. We've got to be close. We're in the home stretch. I was very wrong. (laughs) There's like an hour left of the movie at that point. But the movie was so exciting and so consistently enjoyable. I forgot that I had to pee until the credits roll. And then I sprinted out of that theater to go pee and then came back in to watch the credits. But I also have, as it should be clear from just this, I have very fond memories towards this movie. I I don't know if I would say I like it more every time I watch it, but I think every time I watch it, I remember how much I enjoy this movie. It's one of those films that I kind of forget about when I when I'm not watching it and then when I am watching it I'm like wow this is crazy good what on earth this is amazing so uh, I'm excited to talk about this I think this movie is kind of a fascinating one just in Nolan's filmography because like you said Elliot the audience loves this movie and this film has for sure had kind of a growth of a lot of people considering it very underrated because they see they saw it kind of after the fact after the theaters because the reviews were not great for some of these things 
but uh, yeah, I'm really excited. Let's let's get into it. Let's start talking. Uh, I think the thing that I want to start with, um, and you can you know choose to talk about something else. <laughs> but I do. I really do think this is one of the best built out worlds in a movie. Like I said, I was so sucked into the bleakness of this dystopia. How possible, I guess it seemed to me that I was like, yeah, if all of our food left, like, what would we do? What the fart? And I think the movie is such a, it's such an engaging world because it feels so close to ours, but then it's so different in all these ways, right? They go to an MLB game and there's like no one in the stands because no one really cares about like going, like sports aren't a huge thing now that everyone has to be making food so we don't starve and die. Uh, public schools are teaching that the space program was entirely a fabrication, that the moon landing was faked. Um, it's it's fascinating all of the ways that it's close to ours and it's different. And I, I think it's such an engaging, fascinating sort of world that Nolan builds. Um, do you have a similar sense of it? Do you feel sort of the same? Absolutely. I'm, I'm right there with you. This, for a long time, this was a movie that I was kind of scared to rewatch because it made me so nervous the first time I saw it because it felt so real. Uh, this this vision of a modern society that's kind of been forced back into an agrarian-focused culture. So you have, mm. like, like, everyone is farming like they were in uh, the, the before times, uh, I'm struggling to come up with a date here, but the like the the they do it all automated. It's all automated. Like the combines yeah. and the tractors are all robots. And like you said, like you pointed out, the MLB has been reduced in status. They're teaching that the moon landing was faked, um, which is weird. <laughs> but yeah, this this is one of those movies that makes me really excited about movies. Uh, if you if you know what I mean, like. This movie and Jurassic Park are movies that I watch and I'm just like, where else could you get this? Where else could you get such uh, this this kind of spectacle and this kind of this kind of entertainment? So, yeah, the, it's such a well-realized world. And it did it did it for so long. It was the apocalypse that I pointed to as being the one that most scared me because it felt like the most grounded. Mm. Like that, dude, when when we were in the theater, I distinctly remember when Michael Caine, uh, Dr. Brand, is taking Cooper through NASA, which has been driven underground because public opinion won't support the funding of a space program when there are so many other problems. So he, he they stumble upon NASA through means that we'll get into later. Uh, and Dr. Brand is taking Cooper through this lab where they're testing uh, plants and he explains that it's moving to the corn but it doesn't matter because this growth is so widespread and the fact that it it like breathes nitrogen rather than oxygen means that there's not going to be enough oxygen on the world anymore and everyone's going to suffocate and I distinctly remember being like just so terrified at such a complete and unavoidable fate for the world because like there's no 
there's no bunker that you can hide in there. There's no like military response that you can mount. Like there's just nothing you can do. And I was so scared. I was so scared. Well, and it feels similar to how I felt reading The Road, that it was just such a bleak idea that at no point in Interstellar do I really think like, oh yeah, there's going to be a nice, happy ending. I even, I remember watching this movie with a friend once and it got close to kind of the end and they turned to me and they were like, cry their tears in their eyes they're like nathan you gotta tell does this have a happy ending because this is a bummer like this movie's really bumming me out right now so it feels similar to the road just in terms of and kind of like prisoners just in terms of like man i don't think there's gonna be a happy ending yes this movie is yeah and it's not just the stuff on earth because eventually and I just wanted to say, I, I I hadn't remembered, but you are right. The the trailers for this movie were very cagey with its premise. Like I don't think, I don't think any of them had that much footage from the space portions of the movie, which makes up the bulk of the movie. But yeah, even when they get into space, like the scale of the forces that they're contending with, these fundamental laws of nature, like gravity. And, uh, and 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 the scale of the universe are just so overwhelming that the, the movie does such a good job of instilling in you a sense of just how dire the situation is and how much of a long shot their plan is. Because, uh, mm. just because of how hard it is to be in space. Because you're not really supposed to be there. There's not really much, there's not really much that you can do in there. And there's not really much that you – the threats of this movie, with one exception, who we'll also talk about later, are all things that you, you, you can't fight against. Like you can't fight a black hole and you can't fight the law of relativity that slows down time in a way that I don't understand whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a really good point. And I think that's a good uh, kind of – jumping off point to maybe uh let's talk about you know in the face of these huge huge threats it would be very easy for the movie to be become something like uh 2001 a space odyssey that it's just a kind of very philosophical almost bookish sort of examination of humans grappling with this sort of problem But I don't think the movie does that. And that's because I do think there is a very strong human arc in this film. So let's let's talk a little bit about that human arc. Uh, Matthew McConaughey as Cooper, unknown first name, (laughs) uh, is the protagonist and kind of the. I'd say the heart and soul of the movie is Cooper's relationship with his daughter. But uh, yeah, what what do you think of the human elements of this movie? Especially given, you know, not to put too fine a point on this, but Nolan is historically criticized for making puzzle boxes of movies with very little human element. And we already talked a little bit about Uh, in our Memento episode, that we don't think that's true, that we see a human element. But I think this is the movie where he's sort of swinging for the fences with the human element. 
But uh, what do you think of Cooper and you know some of the characters in this movie? Yeah, I, I, we're we're really in lockstep with each other on this movie uh, because I think that swinging for the fences—that's a perfect way to put it. This movie is really ambitious with the uh, the statement that it wants to make about human nature and about like the power of love and human connection stuff like that. Like, well, I won't talk about that right now, but. I think it works. This was a bit of a this was a bit of a sticking point I think for a lot of people for this movie was that they found it to be a little bit cheesy maybe or maybe a little bit nonsensical. The the idea being that humans aren't just aren't just driven by intellect and theory that you can't achieve these kinds of large-scale movements without acknowledging the human element of them that uh it's a it's something that's driven by more than just a need to survive which is which is kind of introduced in the form of another character who comes into the movie a little later uh it's about the care that you have for other people and that i mean they say that love is the one thing that we know that transcends <sighs> the forces of time and space that's kind of a silly line I don't think it's true also because like hatred can do the same thing, but I understand yes, like, yeah. emo <laughs> emotion. The thing that makes us human is, is our, mm. our feelings and our connections with each other. And that's what that's, those are the, those are the, he's trying to say that the, this is a, a force of nature, just like gravity and just like time and that it's equally as powerful. And I really, I, I'm really, I'm, I'm right there with him. In terms of I agree, and also I think that it's very well put. It's the perfect kind of counterpoint to a lot of the heady sort of scientific theories being thrown around. I think that those two, uh, uh, in my opinion, those two sides of the movies, the of the movie, the human element and the scientific theory element, I think they're married perfectly. And I really like the relationship between Cooper and his daughter because it is such a tragically human relationship like he leaves to go on this mission and murph does not want him to go she thinks that it's dangerous there's a ghost quote unquote in her room knocking stuff off her bookshelf uh for reasons it there the bookshelf the books are just falling off the shelf and she translates the spaces in the bookshelf to the word stay in morse so she thinks that it's a really bad idea, and she thinks that he's leaving her. And so then she refuses to send him any messages after he's gone. And then at first it's out of pettiness and out of spite, and then later on she implies when she does send her first message as an adult, she implies that it's sort of she had to accept it as her penance. Like I, this is some, this is this, these are the consequences of my actions. And I think that's such a compelling and human response both the first response of a child feeling like their parent is abandoning them and the second response of this deep sense of regret for not having reached out and not having understood what was happening as a child so i i think it's perfect i think it's really well done yeah, I, I think it's really well done and it's incredibly well acted. I think it's easy to kind of make fun of Matthew McConaughey because he kind of plays a bit of a Matthew McConaughey character in a lot of his movies and TV shows. 
But I think he's doing a fantastic job here, kind of the iconic scene where he watches, right, 20 years of messages from his uh, son and then Murph at the end. Uh, and he's, you know, just absolutely breaking down, bawling, I think is a really powerful moment. And yeah, everyone does a really good job. Michael Caine, Jessica Chastain, Timmy's in the movie, Timothy Chalamet, you know, uh, and then uh, Casey Affleck in the future. Oh, shoot. What's his name? What's the, the guy who plays David Duke? What's his name? Topher Grace. Yeah, Topher Grace. I love Topher Grace. He's like barely in the movie, but I just absolutely love Topher Grace. Anne Hathaway is in it, and she has to read some of the corny lines that you were <laughs> talking about earlier. But I think she does a really, really good job. So I think, uh, yeah, again, we're really in lockstep here on this. I think the human element is so strong. There's multiple moments in the movie that get me uh, fairly emotional. And I, I'm a sucker for kind of father-daughter or father-son relationships and the kind of core relationship of this movie between Murph and Coop, I think is so well done. It's so believable. It's so just like potently emotional. And it's really carried by, I mean, Jessica Chastain and Matthew McConaughey in you know, both of their respective roles as the person on the planet and the person in space. But I, yeah, I, and I've never, I think there's some moments where the movie gets a little cheesy. I love to make fun of the love <laughs> cars. Love cars, love. Love. <laughs> I love to say that because it's, it's just kind of goofy. But I do think, I agree that he's making a very strong statement of, what makes us human in the face of these huge forces of nature and what kind of drives us to try and overcome those things that, right, doesn't make any sense to try and overcome them. I mean, if my reaction just watching the movie is, dang, it seems like we might all die, so let's just give up. <laughs> Why would we keep fighting? It's, it's for love, Tars. It's love, Elliot. I agree, Nathan. <laughs> And another thing, so we'll, we'll we'll talk a bit more extensively about this later, or I don't know when we will, but we will talk about it. Believe that. There's a part in the, mo in the movie, throughout the movie, they're talking about this guy named Dr. Man. He was part of kind of a, a scouting mission that was sent through the wormhole ahead of this team of Cooper, Dr. Brand, uh, Dr. Brand's daughter, who's also Dr. Brand, played by Anne Hathaway. Doyle, played by Wes Bentley, of all people, and Rommel, who's played by someone I'm afraid I don't know. I'll, I'll look here. Oh, Romilly, by, played by David Gyasi. So Dr. Man went through the wormhole, which we should mention, the wormhole is uh, a is not, it's an artificial creation. It's something that was made, that was put there, which and nobody knows how or why. They It's some, like, supernatural force. Or they think that it's some supernatural force that's trying to help them. But anyway, Dr. Man and his team go through first. And then they talk through, throughout the movie about how great he is, how brilliant he was, and how he was like the driving force behind this mission. And eventually they get to his planet and they find him. And it transpires that he has tricked them. That he what? excuse me, his planet is barren and there's no hope of settling of creating a human colony there 
but he was too scared to say that because he knew that that meant that he was going to die. And he, he talks about how he thought that he was prepared, but he knew how if he turned on his beacon, someone would come and save him. And the temptation was just so overwhelming. So he betrays them. He tries to take over the mission and it's motivated by like, it's bad. Obviously it's wrong, but it's like, it is impossible for me at least to see him as wholly villainous or see him as evil because he just seems so tragically catastrophically human that he just bit off more than he could chew and he wasn't strong enough to follow through with it and that is such a universally deeply human experience i i, I love the character of dr man i think that he he's a really great late movie twist slash foil I definitely agree. And I think he's another example of uh, just the movie showing how these kind of fundamental human emotions and human drives run up against these huge forces that we're talking about. Like we can see how Cooper's love for his child affects what he does and what he chooses to do. And we can see how man, Dr. Mann's like fundamental desire to not be dead and desire to be alive influences right his own choices and his own what he does in the face of these huge questions of uh you know how do we survive and how do we keep moving on as a human race and i think i i think it's really fascinating i think it's really well done it also leads to you know let's talk about here this movie has some fantastic set pieces. I think a lot of people talk about, I love what you said, right? That a lot of the villains in this movie are not malignant or malevolent. They're just a force. And I think the perfect example in the first part of that is the waves in the first planet they go to, that they're, the whole surface of the planet is water. And so with nothing for the waves to break against, there's like giant human humongous waves that come across and it's i mean it's an astonishing scene it's so cool the music is fantastic it's again something in the theater i remember seeing and just thinking like oh that's so clever it's so unique and it's such like an instantly terrifying thing tsunamis are horrifying a giant planet-sized tsunami that you have no like chance of escaping is even more terrifying, is even more scary. And is, so that is just amazing. And then obviously, you know, let's just talk about this. The best scene in the movie, one of my favorite scenes in any movie ever, the docking scene where man has blown up kind of the ship that they use to travel from planet to planet. And then Cooper has to dock with the ship while it's kind of spinning out of control and going towards the black hole, uh, this scene is sick. And this scene is just, Elliot, I liked what you said uh, when I was home last week that you were talking about uh, what's a scene in a movie that's so good that even if it's not necessarily appropriate, you just kind of laugh at like how incredible the thing you're watching is. The docking scene is a scene like that for me. From the moment Coop says, Anne Hathaway goes, oh, what are you doing? And Coop says, I'm docking. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. It's so cool. The music is amazing. I remember just being floored in the theater 
And again, you might, if you haven't seen the movie, you might be like, wow, this sounds like a really lame, like a ship docking with another ship. That's stupid. Dude, it is so, it looks amazing. It's shot so well. The music is incredible. My heart is in my throat for almost the entire time. Everything Coop says is like the most BA dope thing. Oh, you can't do It's impossible. No, it's necessary. <laughs> gosh this seems amazing dude oh my goodness this this, it is euphoric this scene like i and yeah it's just a scene that makes me cackle every time when he says docking i just cackle every time because i'm like yes here we go this is one of the most incredible scenes in the medium of film that i have ever seen and Dude, yeah, every part of it is so cool and so tense and so well constructed. The shot, it's one of, also one of my favorite shots in any movie ever, but there's this shot of the space station wheeling across the planet's surface, just spewing this massive trail of debris, and it's it's jaw-dropping. This scene, this scene is like worth the price of admission it's worth taylor swift's stupid 20 dollar price of admission just to see this <laughs> scene it is that amazing yeah and the other again the other action sort of set pieces or the other sort of set pieces in the movie are also really good but this docking scene is so good and i guess since we already mentioned it this soundtrack is crazy good it is so dramatic it does such an amazing job of contributing to just how huge the movie feels in scope that so many of the songs and so much of the score is these incredibly dramatic organs and you know it feels like something you would hear as you walk into just the biggest church in the world just just so dramatic and so cool uh, the corn chase music. I mean, Hans Zimmer is making all of these things sound way more dramatic than they would if it was just. Again, I think the soundtrack does a big does a big work in making the movie feel as huge as it does because the docking scene would not be as dramatic and tense as it is if it didn't have this incredibly dramatic and tense song accompanying what's happening on the screen. Absolutely. I would say that this is career best work from Hans Zimmer. And that is, I did not say that lightly because Hans Zimmer is a really good composer. But yeah, I don't, I don't listen to this soundtrack casually. I listen to this soundtrack passionately. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it, it is, you're absolutely right. It is, it is in perfect lockstep with the movie's themes and the movie's scope. Uh, it's very ethereal. It's supposed to evoke church music because Nolan is kind of playing around with the idea of the divine in the form of this wormhole and these apparent benefactors who seem to be like supernaturally powerful. And it turns out, it transpires, spoiler warning, it transpires that it was actually future humans who had done this. A civilization of humanity so advanced that it was capable of doing these kinds of things and that it didn't it viewed time this species this race who you never see like this is something that cooper concludes it's not something like a bunch of weird looking humans appear on screen 
but Cooper concludes that they kind of view time a bit like uh, Dr. Manhattan does in that it's not linear for them. It's something physical that they can interact with and affect. And that kind of nails, drives home the movie's point about human connection being a force of nature because the whole thing that allows humans to survive and then evolve to this level is Cooper's connection with his daughter. So it's, uh, the, the idea is that like, the divine, the supernatural is just a reflection of humanity's best aspects of it, of itself. Kind of like the old Voltaire quote that God created man in his own image and man returned the favor. I don't agree with that, obviously, but I understand it. And I think that it's well portrayed here. Uh, I I think that I, again, like there's a moment in the Tesseract, this like physical space representing time that Cooper ends up in that's at the heart of a black hole First of all, again, in the theater, I remember him going into the black hole and I was like, wait, what's going to happen now? I was, and this movie does such a good job of keeping you on the edge of your seat, of constantly keeping you guessing. So anyway, in this physical space representing time, a lot of people think that this is where the movie uh, kind of goes off the rails and gets a little cheesy with its messaging. I think it works. I like it. I understand it. I think it's a good it's a good sequence and uh yeah but uh, i'm curious to hear what you think because i know that uh th- this sequence is a bit of a sticking point for some people i really like this sequence i agree that i remember in the theater i was very much interested in what was going to happen next i think this is kind of a classic nolan end set piece in that it's working mainly because of editing between two different sort of things that being Cooper in the Tesseract and Murph in his, uh, in kind of the house that they were in as children. And her brother, who is very upset with her, is coming back. And so there's this tension of Cooper needs to communicate the message. Uh, the tension is completely constructed because Cooper is outside of time. So whenever he finds the correct time, is like he'll have always found the correct time, which doesn't matter because if you're invested in the movie like I am every time I watch it, I never realize that to be like, oh, this scene's tension is completely constructed. But I think it's a pretty good scene. Uh, Again, I do like to make fun of the uh, Love Tars line. Uh, But I, I think this is a good ending. And it's really fun for me, at least, to see kind of all of the things come full circle that we see that Cooper was the ghost, so to speak, that was creating all of these disturbances in the house at the beginning of the movie, which is really fun just because I love that sort of uh, narrative cohesion that everything makes sense. There's no ridiculous plot holes, which might seem like a low bar, but you don't watch enough movies. If you, (laughs) that goes unsuccessful in quite a few films, but yeah, I, I really like, I, lo- I like this ending quite a bit. And then the final sort of moments of then Cooper on the ship and he finally sees Murph again always get me a little emotional uh, when she says, I knew that you were going to get there. How? Because my daddy promised me. I'm... That's a great line. It makes me cry quite a bit. It's a great ending. I do kind of want to go to... Uh, though... Hold on a second. Oh. Before you do that, we should oh. note for anyone who hasn't seen this movie and is confused, uh, the reason that 
Cooper being in the Tesseract in the physical time space and communicating with Murphy helps them is because uh, they need the data, the like quantum. I don't understand it at all. Nathan, maybe you could help us, but the like quantum data at the heart of a black hole in order to finish this equation that will help them get their giant space stations off the earth and save everyone on earth rather than just starting over with the new human colony. So he communicates that to Murph through this, uh, this time space by like affecting the hands of a watch that he had given her uh, to communicate the formula in Morse code. So yeah. Also like, did, did that make any sense to you, Nathan, as a person who understands science? Uh, so it seems, I mean, they're kind of vague about what exactly the equation they're trying to solve. And I don't, and if I had to guess, it would probably be a guts, which would be a grand unifying theory or grand unifying theories, because there's multiple forces in not to get too technical here. There's quite a few forces existing in the universe and a grand unifying theory or grand unifying theories would theoretically connect some of those forces. So like if you've heard of electromagnetism, electric force and magnetic force are two separate things, but they're related to each other. And we have equations that can show how that relation works. So it appears, you know, kind of on a low level that he's looking for some way to connect gravity to something else so that they could find a way to like manipulate gravity using electricity or using magnets. Uh, obviously those things don't exist or have not been discovered in real life. I don't know if going into a black hole would necessarily help you find that data. Uh, it does in this movie and it's certainly sciencey enough that I think it's sort of legit. I don't know. If you're like a theoretical physicist, maybe you'd be a little a little more skeptical of what's happening. But I think the science in the movie is pretty decent. There was a lot of buzz about uh, the black hole and the way the black hole looks in this movie because it's based off of very heavy science. And apparently it took like every frame that the black hole is on screen, it took like two hours or something like that to render for the computer kind of simulation that they're running the CGI through uh, to kind of generate the image. So it's a very, I mean, he's making a worthy attempt to make it seem scientific, like grounded enough that I think the average person would go, yeah, that sounds like, <laughs> that sounds like something that could work. All right. Thank you. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Yeah. Anyway, I, I do think, you know, I've kind of run out of positives. I think we should talk about negatives. My biggest negative is Cooper's son gets the absolute shaft in this movie. And again, you might be like, whoa, he had a son. Yeah, he does have a son. <laughs> and the movie, it's just, I think his name, isn't his name Cooper Jr.? What's his name? His name is Tom. Tom, see, I can't even remember his name. It's weird for a movie this dedicated to like human connection and specifically a father's connection to his children that Tom kind of get like Tom gets very little sort of uh, characterization. He much more gets swept under the rug. Uh, like Coop, there's not even a scene at the end of Coop being like, oh, where's Murph? 
where's Tom? Like, where's my son? Where's my boy? Uh, he doesn't appear to care. Or, I mean, he does appear to care, but he appears to care way more about Murph than Tom, which I think is kind of a whack thing for a parent to do. But I think Tom is kind of the biggest sticking point in this film in the kind of future or the kind of at the time when the climax of the movie takes place, Tom is very jaded. He doesn't really like his dad anymore, maybe because his dad left without really saying that much in the way of, hey, I love you, you know, I'll be back or something. To Tom, he said that to Murph, kind of weird again. And so Tom's kind of pissed about that. But besides, like, Tom kind of gets, like, a villain role. And again, it feels fairly justified because his father did seem to be kind of rude to him for no reason. Uh, so I think there's other moments where the movie maybe strays a bit too far into the corny area. But I think Tom is the biggest sticking point for me just because thematically it feels like his character is slipping through the cracks a little bit. Uh, again, we are in total agreement. Uh, my least favorite part of this movie, bar none, is the fact that he never even asks about Tom at the end of the movie. Uh, we're now like 124 years into the future, or maybe a little bit less, and Murph is an old woman, and he is he's ejected from the Tesseract back into the solar system, whereupon he's recovered and brought onto one of the space stations, and he learns that his daughter's alive, she's coming to see him, she's very old, but she wants to see him. Uh, one last time, and he doesn't even ask, like, "Hey, what about my son? What about Tom? What happened to him?" <laughs> um, and yeah, I would, I don't, I wouldn't say that it's like hostility. It's kind of like apathy. It seems more to me. Yeah, and I agree. It it, it is a point against the movies otherwise very moving and very well constructed themes of human connection and the love that a father has for his children. And honestly, this time around when I was watching it, I was thinking like it wouldn't take that much tinkering to just take out the son and just have it just have Murph be his only child. And I think that you would have you would probably have a perfect movie at that point for me. Yeah, I, I would agree. That's that really is my only negative. I think the last two sort of positives that I would want to say before we get into reviews is. Uh, I think I already mentioned this. The movie looks incredible. I want to. This is Hoyta, isn't it? I am looking right now. Oh, he's looking right now. Well, the special effects look really good. All of yes, the, it is. you know, it is Hoyta. Okay, Hoyta van Hoytema, fantastic cinematographer. He's been Nolan's cinematographer for the last couple of movies, all of which look fantastic. Uh, this one is no exception. I also would like to say this movie is another one where I we mentioned this in the Dark Knight review, this movie is funny. Like, there's very funny jokes in this movie. I'm thinking specifically of Tars, who is kind of the robot that goes along. A lot of the lines that Tars has are very funny. He's got jokes about, you know, like, turning into an evil AI and killing Coop. He's got jokes about exploding. I find him very funny. I think he's a, a really fantastic sort of levity um uh the uh, appearance of levity he adds a lot of levity to the film <laughs> i completely ran out of words there so i i would say this is yet another movie where nolan nails how to have a really good tone that's not i mean we'd spent a lot of time talking about how bleak this movie is 
But this movie, it's not bleak in a way where the movie isn't enjoyable. It's just bleak in like a, man, I really don't know how they're going to get out of this thing. As opposed to like, again, Prisoners, which is bleak in like a, I'm losing faith in humanity as I watch this sort of thing. Yeah, it's bleak because the stakes are very high and the threat yeah. very severe. I agree, once again, this movie's great. Hoyt, uh, Van Hoytema is a fantastic cinematographer, definitely in the Roger Deakins League of Cinematographers uh, with Greg Fraser, in my mind, uh, in case that means anything to anyone except Nathan. <laughs> I can't remember. Oh, yeah. I love the design of the robots. They're so cool and creative. Like, they're basically mm. just giant rectangles that can kind of... It's, it's really hard to describe. I would never... If I was ever to write a story about these robots, I would design them differently because it would be so hard to describe how they work and what they look like. But <laughs> So I'm not even going to try. They just look really cool, and I believe that they're mostly practical, which is fantastic. Nolan is a big fan of practical effects, which I, I always appreciate. And, yeah, I, I just really appreciate how unique they look and operate. They're another amazing part of the movie that feels very again, grounded and realistic. The robots don't look like something that couldn't exist in today's world in like two or three years. They look real enough that I'm like, yeah, that could be a robot soon. It, it's, it reminds me of the best episodes of Black Mirror, that the technology is like, yeah, I guess, I, you know, if Facebook revealed something like this next year, I would be, I wouldn't be shocked. I wouldn't be like, whoa, what a leap forward. I'd be like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> All right. Are you, are you ready to get into ratings? you have any final thoughts? I feel bad that I kept saying things and then you just had to go like, yeah, for sure. I agree. <laughs> That's all right. Because I'm always more articulate and eloquent than you. So I can always express it a lot better. Um, <laughs> bender, bender. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I'm, I'm ready to rate. I will go first. This is a fantastic movie. This is a incredible movie. It has so much that I love about it thematically, stylistically, aesthetically. We didn't even talk about, well, I mean, we did actually talk about how cool everything looks, like the the NASA grounded technology of everything. Um, yeah, it's just such, it does such a good job of everything that it sets out to achieve in terms of instilling a sense of scale and stakes in the viewer, but grounding it in this very intimate human drama. All the characters are recognizably human, and very empathetic, very sympathetic. Uh, I think that this, I like we said, I, we don't think that Nolan is all that inhuman, but I think that this is definitely his most human movie that he's made. The relationship between Coop and his daughter, like, yeah, just everything we've talked about. Fantastic. It has literally one of the most incredible sequences I've ever had the privilege of seeing on the screen in the docking scene. The only thing that keeps it from an A+, is the fact of his son who it's not like terrible. It doesn't bring the film down a whole lot, but it is something that I wish had been paid a little bit more attention to and had been a little bit more fleshed out. But in the face of everything that this movie does right, it's a minor concern. So I'm going to give this movie a solid A. Yeah, uh, I agree with everything you said. Movie's great. I'm going to give it uh, a 9.6. I mean, what can I say? <laughs> I, I right. feel the same. Good stuff. Let's talk about some other movies that may not might not necessarily be as good as Interstellar, but certainly are very good. 
my recommendation for this movie is Gravity, directed by Alfonso Cuaron. Uh, This is a a director who I have kind of mixed feelings about. I really like this movie, and I really like uh, Children of Men. I'm not a big fan of Roma. That doesn't matter, because we're not talking about those movies. Gravity is set in Earth's orbit, and it follows this astronaut uh, who tries to get home after a destroyed satellite, the debris field of a destroyed satellite, obliterates the station that they're working on and starts spinning around, starts orbiting the Earth, um, consistently messing stuff up for her and breaking a bunch of infrastructure that she needs to get home. Um, She has a partner in the form of George Clooney, the main character, I've forgotten all the names, but the main character is played by, played by, isn't it Sandra Bullock? Yep. Yes. Um, So the threat, much like in Interstellar, is these titanic colossal forces, uh, specifically gravity, in case you were wondering, but it's grounded in a human survival story. It's a great survival story in kind of in the vein of Castaway or The Martian, which is another uh, similar movie to Interstellar that you should watch. But I chose this one because it does have that human element of there's a consistent thread of her daughter and her kind of missing her. And there are some revelations about that relationship that really ground the movie in another intimate human drama that I really like. Performances are great. Special effects are famously fantastic for this movie. It's not quite as scientifically accurate uh, as Interstellar. There's an infamous point where something happens that like should not be happening according to the laws of physics. But all that aside, it's a great movie. It's very tense. It is so tense. Oh my gosh. She is like really surviving by the skin of her teeth here. And I think it would be a perfect double feature for Interstellar. Yeah, I agree. I ended up seeing Gravity for some reason in the theaters, but only part of it. Uh, I do like Gravity quite a bit, although I will have to say uh, the scene you're talking about where something happens that's like egregiously ignoring the laws of gravity really bugs me because it is like a really egregious uh, misuse of the laws of physics. And because it is kind of like crucial to the plot. I don't know if I'd necessarily love rewatching the movie just because I know that scene would really bug me, but the rest of the movie is really good. Very tense. Like you said, Uh, my recommendation is a bit of a weird one. And I do have to say, I've only seen this movie once. I really want to rewatch it. I went to it in theaters with uh, my dad and I really enjoyed it, but I, since then I haven't been able to rewatch it. So this could, uh, you know, just kind of an asterisk here. But my recommendation is Ad Astra. It uh, came out a couple years ago. It follows Brad Pitt as an astronaut who is kind of sent on a mission to try and find his dad, who had previously went on kind of an exploratory mission in kind of the edges of the of the our solar system. Uh, this is a really fantastic movie. Once again, just like in Interstellar, it is a fantastically realized and grounded sort of world it's not so science fiction that it's fake but it's science fiction enough that it's very uh exciting it's interesting obviously we've uh we've got colonies on the moon in this universe we've got stuff on mars in this universe uh i really enjoy this movie it's got two absolutely stellar scenes that i just thought were super sick there's a moon dune buggy race scene that is dope and looks amazing and then there's 
a scene where he happens upon kind of a destroyed ship that's a bit more thriller adjacent of a scene. And that's another great one where uh, the final sort of reveal of what the issue is, I think is a pretty sick one. And it did make me go like, oh, dang, that's an issue. But this is another great movie. It's got some sort of philosophical musings about the nature of uh, guilt, life, as he's looking for his dad and trying to figure out what he kind of wants to do. It looks incredible. This is Hoyta Van Hoytema again. So if you want a back-to-back Hoyta feature, do this one. Uh, I'm going to try and rewatch it here pretty soon, but that's going to be my recommendation. It's fantastic, very grounded, very well done movie. Yeah, I have not seen that, so I cannot comment. But um, hey, you know what they say, life's hard and full of disappointments. Yeah, I think Voltaire said that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Pulling out the Voltaire quote, that's crazy to me. I can't ever pull out anyone's quotes besides Leo Tolstoy. But yeah, thanks for listening. Uh, We're going to be back next week. Uh, We're going to see what kind of episode it is. So we'll leave that in suspense. Who, Who knows what it could be. Otherwise, we hope you enjoyed this episode. We hope you have a great week. And we're going to see you next week for another brand new episode of Magellan's at the Movies.